If you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to the Gospel according to Luke. And this morning we'll be in the 8th chapter. Uh, If you're just coming in, no, you have not entered the twilight zone. Um, We're doing things a little bit differently this morning. We're going to have the sermon on the front side, and then we're going to respond with musical worship. So this is sermon worship. Uh, I'm going to worship God by preaching, all things for the glory of God. And hopefully you're going to worship God by listening, all things for the glory of God. And then we'll respond uh, in our musical worship this morning. So Luke chapter 8 is where we'll be in our Bibles today. I want to begin by asking you a question that's kind of a tough question to ask on a Sunday morning, but you look like a pretty alert bunch, so I'm going to be risking it and asking you this question. Is faith irrational? Is faith irrational? I think most people that I know outside of Bible circles, outside of theological circles, most people I know outside of those kinds of realms, most people I know would say that faith is irrational. Faith is what you have when you don't have facts, in other words. My guess is most people you know, even people who say they're Christians, that they're people of faith, my guess is most people you know would conclude that faith is contrary to reason, that it is irrational. Now, right about now, you're thinking, if you know me very well at all, you're thinking, so Pat's about ready to tell us that faith is actually rational, right? Well, what I would like to suggest to you by way of introduction today of our passage, faith is neither rational or irrational. Faith means trust. Faith means trust, so it's not rational and it's not irrational. Now again, hang with me, I know it's early. If you're trusting in someone or something that is not trustworthy, that's irrational. Right? If you're trusting in someone or something that is trustworthy, proven trustworthy, What's that? That's rational. That makes sense. That makes sense. And our life is filled with examples. Right now, and in so many different ways, we're going to trust in things that are proven trustworthy. Sometimes, sometimes we put our trust in things that have been shown to not be trustworthy, and we would say, well, that's a foolish kind of thing. You say, why are we going through this philosophical kind of exercise, getting ready for all of this? Because in Luke chapter 8, we're going to look at two examples, two things that Jesus does that demonstrates for us that to trust in Him, to have faith in Him, is rational. It makes sense because of who He is. Reversing it, putting it in the negative, we'll look at two passages This morning, two different things that Jesus does, two different actions he takes that are quite extraordinary that will demonstrate the unreasonableness, the irrationality of not believing in him. We're going to see people not believing in Jesus and it's as if they're saying, don't confuse me with the facts, I know what I believe. 
what they're believing, what they're not believing is contrary to evidence. It is contrary to fact. It doesn't make sense. It's as if they're saying, I'm not going to believe. I'm just going to take untrustworthiness on faith (laughs) to talk the way we might even talk in our culture. I want you to be encouraged today that if you're a Christian, you're trusting in Jesus and He is trustworthy and these two things He does helps you to see that. I want you to be encouraged today even as missionaries in Omaha, Nebraska. I want you to be encouraged as ambassadors because if you're a Christian, you're an ambassador for Jesus Christ because as you communicate the truth about Jesus... Realize and get better equipped. You're communicating with people who think that faith is irrational. That doesn't even make sense. Faith is trust. When we're talking about Christianity, we're talking about faith not in fantasy. That would be irrational. We're talking about faith, trust in historic events that happened on planet Earth in real time, in real space, If we're talking about Christian faith, we're trusting in Jesus who came here. We're going to see it in our text. And who lived a certain way. And who did certain things. Who eventually then climactically goes to a physical crucifixion. A real crucifixion, not fantasy. And who bodily, actually, not in fantasy world, rises from the dead. We're talking about historic things that are worthy of our trust. To the point where it would be, once again, irrational not to trust in the one who did these things. Well, I hope you're ready to see these examples. They're meant to bolster your commitment to Christ, to foster commitment to Christ, to help you to communicate with people better, I hope. I'm sort of itching to jump right into all of this. First of all, he calms the storm. That's the first demonstration. We're going to see it in chapter 8 of Luke, Luke 8:22, And jump right in with me, if you would, in verse 22, where it says, One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. We're going to go faster in a moment, but I have to stop right there just sort of to, to allow you to appreciate what's happening, where they are. Uh, This morning was beautiful in my backyard. I like sitting outside at the table, uh, reading, talking to my wife, drinking coffee. It was nice. But it wasn't this kind of nice. Sea of Galilee. Nice, beautiful setting. It's actually not a sea. It's a lake. It's like 13 miles by 7 miles. I would describe it as kind of a basin. Uh, It may not technically be that. I've probably got a D in geography. Uh, Anyway, so, or geology, I got got two Ds. Anyway, (laughs) I was a freshman in college. What did I know? Anyway, not how to study, that's for sure. Anyway, this kind of basin area surrounded by the uh, mountainous kinds of areas. It's just nice, beautiful area. Some of the calmest water I've ever seen. I've told the story many times. I'll have to tell it again for the sake of, of... your short, short memory, or, or if you're newer uh, as one of my friends, I remember it's the coolest place I've ever wakeboarded before in my life. Showing up there, and there you are, Sea of Galilee. It's this butter, just amazing water. We show up to wakeboard, and there's a reason why it's called the sea. It's still called the sea to this day. It's not a sea, it's a lake. 
You're looking at it and seeing this amazing glassy water. You would, why would they call this a sea? It doesn't make any sense. We show up at the, the marina or wherever we showed up to, to, to wakeboard, and I asked for whatever guy was supposed to, to meet us there, and they said, oh, he's not here. He's at sea. We'll call him on the cell phone. So even unbelieving contemporary Jewish wakeboarders uh, would call it the sea. They come back, they pick us up, we go out wakeboard, uh, wakeboarding, have a great time together. Uh, they're super gracious hosts, and they're, you know, it's kind of the, the, the wakeboarding kind of brotherhood. We're American wakeboarders, they're Israeli wakeboarders, and we're just hanging out and having a great time. And we all wakeboard once, and then the guy driving the boat said, okay, we're done. And I said, okay. Thinking, I'm not done. I'm going again. I go two times when I wakeboard. He said, no, we're done. Trying to be polite. And again, this is all just their graciousness. This is all free, gratis. This is just a wakeboard thing. I said, what do you mean we're done? He points to the end of the lake and he said, look over there. Then you see the white caps. And then he explained how the wind comes down through the valley and creates this. And by the time we get back to the marina, there are big white caps. By the time we get back to our, our hotel or wherever we were staying on the other side of the lake, I kid you not, we're body surfing on this lake. We're body surfing? What do you mean body surfing on a lake? I mean, there's like once a year in, on Lake Michigan in some weird little town in Wisconsin where they get out their surfboards and look like crazy Wisconsin people. I, I understand. But... This is like a pretty normal occurrence. Now we're body surfing? It was butter. Now the waves are like this big? This is absolutely crazy. And here's what I want you to understand. And it wasn't a storm. In our text, it's a storm on the Sea of Galilee. It's why they call it a sea. One minute it can be amazing, calm, peaceful. The next minute, big, huge waves. Well, and then the next minute, you've got a storm. And that's what we see here with Jesus. So much for wakeboarding. Let's get back to the text. Look what it says in verse 22. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. He mean Jesus. And a windstorm came down on the lake. Interesting, even the way that it's worded. Came down on the lake, just as I've witnessed before. And they were filling up with water and were in danger. Put your finger there just for a second to realize Peter's a fisherman. This is what he cut his teeth doing. This is what he understands to be true. This is what he understands to be normal. So it's something extraordinary if it makes him in a panic. Okay, He's not first time, doesn't have a sea legs. This is, this is bread and butter for him. And yet he's nervous. Then verse 24 says, And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Again, think Peter the fisherman, so this is an alarming thing. Then it says in verse 24, And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. <laughs> you know, if there were sound effects, done. I circled rebuke, calm. Extraordinary supernatural, not normal. This isn't. And then what they did is they redistributed the weight and they got their heads about them and they worked together to make sure that they didn't take on too much water. And No, Jesus speaks and demonstrates He has power over the elements. He demonstrates He has power that nobody else has. Where we're going is trustworthiness. If you're on his side, it's extraordinary what happens here. 
Because then verse 25, we see that he said to them, where is your faith? Where is your faith? Now, let's just all pretend, this is fantasy land, but, but let's just pretend for a moment, speaking of fantasies, that, that we haven't been raised on 20th and 21st century American Oprah theology. Okay, let's just pretend like we're not who we are. Okay, let's just pretend like we're really biblically literate. Okay, and let's just pretend like we don't have all that baggage. And we'll read that verse. Where is your faith? He's not saying, where is your self-confidence? Where is your faith in self? Where is your ability to say, I believe, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. Just think positive thoughts. Where is your faith? Okay, that's pop culture way of thinking of it. That's not what he means. Where is your faith? Where The point is, why don't you trust? Faith is trust. Why don't you trust me? You're showing that you don't trust me. And by my supernatural action that I just performed, I'm showing you that it doesn't make any sense for you to not trust in me. Because I'm the, I'm the one who could do this. I'm totally in charge. Where is your faith? It's another way of saying your faith is not in the right place. Because your faith should be in me. I just showed you that based upon what I did. He, he, he's saying it's irrational for you to not trust me. And I proved it by what I just did. It's very cool to observe. Amazing to observe. He's the supernatural one who can be confided in. Who can be trusted. Where is your faith? In other words, your faith is where it shouldn't be. Your faith is in self. Your faith is in circumstances. Your faith isn't in me. Verse 25 then says, And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Who is he? He's the proper object of our faith. He's the one we should be trusting in. Is what's happening? It would make no sense to not put our trust in him. Is what's happening? You see? It would be irrational to not have faith if the object of your faith is Jesus. I mean, that, that, that is worth the price of admission this morning. I mean, if you can just get one thing, and I'm going to try my very best to talk about it till the day I die, or until our whole culture changes the way it thinks and talks. Because I want you to get this for your own soul's sake. I want you to get this so you're a really good ambassador and you can communicate cross-culturally. When we talk about faith in the United States of America, we're not talking about this. It's a different kind of category. But we at least need to understand the biblical way of thinking so we can communicate it to other people because we're talking about one who demonstrates in the here and now world that he is worthy of trust. Faith is not irrational, provided you're trusting in the one who is worthy of trust. And that's what we're talking about. Jesus, is demonstra- Jesus isn't like the phantom guy. Jesus isn't the one who, who's, who, who just offers um, uh, musings and philosophies. He demonstrates 
His power, which backs up His claims. We're not talking about faith in faith. We're talking about faith in Jesus who shows He's trustworthy. And then, think about this. As cool as this would have been to see, as staggering as it might be, as amazing as it is that He speaks just like God does and, and, and things happen, this is minor compared to where it's headed. See, He's going to show Himself time and time and time again that He has this power, that He is trustworthy, that He really is the one He claims to be, but it's all going ultimately toward His redemptive work. I mean, clim- climaxing in, in bodily resurrection. It it makes sense that he's going to rise from the dead and it's actually going to happen because when he speaks earlier on about supernatural things, they actually happen. And so, we're going to trust him when you're in the boat with him. But far greater, you're going to trust him when he rises from the dead for you and everything else that he does. It's extraordinary to consider and to think about. This is why the Bible, time and time again, not just in the Gospels, but as we move out of the Gospels and we look at Romans and we look at Galatians and we look elsewhere, it's by faith, by faith, justified by faith, saved by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. It almost becomes shorthand, but it's not just faith. It's faith in Jesus because he is faith-worthy, trustworthy. I want you to get that. More than anything, I want you to get that. He's trustworthy. And before we move on, let's just acknowledge that this doesn't necessarily mean that nothing bad will ever happen to you. Let's not isolate even our passage. They're in the boat. Looks like they're going to capsize. Hope they're not too far from shore so that they can swim in. But if you just have faith in Jesus, nothing bad will ever happen to you. That would be very, very um, immature to to conclude. Because if you keep reading the gospel accounts, you're going to see that all of these disciples die. They all suffer. We're promised persecution even as believers. So we have to realize that he's not saying you'll never die or nothing bad will ever happen to you. But his major point is... You can trust me no matter what's happening. And then we all of a sudden, we can reach out and branch out and you need to and I want you to reach out and branch out and think about the trustworthiness of Jesus even amidst the difficulties and it doesn't guarantee that the boat's never going to capsize. And then we go to those passages that are our favorites like Romans chapter 8 and God promises that all things in our life are going to work together for our good if we're in Christ Jesus. How could that be? Well, it can be if Jesus is the trustworthy one. And even my belief in Romans chapter 8 and that promise there that everything in my life, the good and the bad, the upside down and the right side up, that everything, if I'm a Christian, is going to work somehow for my good. How could that possibly be? Well, that promise is based upon the historic genuineness and reality of the work of Jesus. So if you will, Luke chapter 8 is what bolsters and holds up Romans chapter 8. Just think about how staggering it is to your mind. 
So let's just let's just talk about me because I like myself. Um, <laughs> let me just talk about just just about me first. I believe that everything in my life, good or bad, tragic otherwise, is going to be for my spiritual growth. Because Romans eight says that Romans eight twenty eight. So everything that's going to happen in my life is somehow going to be for that ultimate betterment, for the glory of Christ. How in the world could 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 anybody orchestrate that? You you, you can't orchestrate. How could how could you possibly do that? You couldn't do that. I can't do that. Of all the mistakes. And all of the things I think I'm doing right that aren't right, and all of the things that you can't sort out, and you go, all things? But as a Christian, I believe that. Now let's just make it a bazillion times more complicated. I believe that about you and your life too, if you're a Christian. And you believe that about your life if you're a Christian. And now all of a sudden we have, as far as the naked eye can see, countless people who believe that and it's true for them too because this is for everyone who's in Christ Jesus. How in the world could it ever be that this could be true for one person, not to mention countless people to us, countless? And it's the promise of God? How could this be? Well, just 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 take it on faith which has nothing to do with reality and it's just fantasy. No, don't. Take it on fact. Don't take it on faith, if you know what I'm saying, in context. Take it on fact that it's based upon the reality of who Jesus is. The Jesus who says, stop, storm, and it stops. The Jesus who does all kinds of things that nobody can do because of the uniqueness of who He is. It's extraordinary. It's amazing. It's irrational to conclude anything else based upon who he is and how he demonstrated himself to be who he claimed to be. Now let's move on to the next one. As if it could get any better. It doesn't get better. It's just different. Another account, and we see him casting out demons in verses 26 and following. Then they sailed to the, uh, to the country of the Gerizans, which is opposite Galilee. So they're, they're still Sea of Galilee region, still Galilee region. They're going to go to the other side, to a, a Gentile area over there, uh, but still Sea of Galilee related. Verse 27 says, When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. You can just put your finger there for a second and, and realize it's, just not, it's not the way I talk demons. Like, I got demons in my head today. It's a tough day. Or I'm fighting my own demons. It's not that kind of thing because these demons are so real that they're going to be sent into pigs. Don't know how that works. I'd like to send my demons into pigs sometimes. But we're not talking about those kind of demons. We're talking about demons who are so actual and real they can be sent into pigs and the pigs can be killed. Hundreds if not thousands of them. So it's a little different than the way we talk when we're just talking about a bad day, bad circumstance, um, sinful thoughts, temptations. There's, some, there's something more extraordinary going on here. Then it says in verse 27, halfway through, For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. 
So it's by a graveyard, and that's where this guy lives. That's where he's tied to. Maybe just one interesting point about this that might help you to read your Bible better. And that would be, this is extraordinary. This isn't normal. This is not normal in human history. The kinds of demonic activity we see recorded. This isn't normal in the Old Testament. This isn't normal in the New Testament. What we see during the time when Jesus is on earth, you see this, if you will, spike in demonic activity. Um, New Testament scholar Leon Morris, don't take his word for it, read your Bible, but just get, it gives us some helpful insight when he says, demon possession is rare if it occurs at all in the Old Testament. Rare if it occurs at all in the Old Testament. And there are very few examples after the Gospels. His conclusion is, in the Bible, demon possession is part of the upsurge or increase of evil opposing Jesus in the time of His incarnation. And He's not the first or the last to make the observation. Too many times we just read our Bible and we don't think about chronology and we don't think about how things fit together and we fail to then see this is unique, it seems. Why would it be unique? Well, it would be unique because everything historically had been anticipating since the fall, this event to come, the incarnation and the work of Jesus. And then after, everything after looks back to that. So if there are demons, and Jesus believes in demons, so I do too, if there are demons who oppose God and the work of God and the redeeming work of the Son of God, they're going to be active like never before when it comes to His redeeming action. And that seems to be what's going on here. Verse 28 then says, When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss, the ultimate final condemnation of de demons like Revelation talks about. 32 says, Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, not the pigs, but the demons. Uh, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Now, why he did this and all that jazz, I don't know. Pigs are unclean animals to the Jews, so it's a Gentile region. Why they asked for this to happen and how that works, I have no idea. Neither do you. <laughs> Neither does anybody, so to speak. And you go, that's pretty interesting. I mean, we can definitely conclude that, you know, this is before Jesus joined PETA and got his head on straight. Um, <laughs> I think if he owns a cattle on a thousand hills, um, he probably owns the pigs too and can do whatever he wants to do with them. But the point being, demons know who Jesus is. They're real. They're afraid. He allows them this out, if you will, because it's not time for their final condemnation. And what a mess it would have been. Can you imagine? 
It would have been made very visible. Maybe that's why this is, is the case. So there's no question about what Jesus did as far as, well, he, he made some kind of incantation. Incantation? Is that the right way to say it? Yeah. Um, you know, hocus pocus thing. And No, whatever he did led to that which is demonstrable. No arguing that he had the power to do it. Where were we? 33, I think. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. 34. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened and they came to Jesus clothed. Uh, excuse me. And they came to Jesus and found a man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. That's like chapter 8, verse 25, when the, the disciples were afraid. Supernatural work done by Jesus, and here's supernatural work done by Jesus. Similar kind of response. Then verse 36, and those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. 37, then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerizans asked him to forgive their sins. Doesn't say that, does it? They saw it and it was demonstrable and it was, it was evident and it was objective. And so they saw Jesus for who He really is and they did the rational thing and they said, Jesus, You must be the Son of God. Will, will You be our atoning Savior? That would be rational. But it doesn't say that. And asked Him to depart from them. For they were seized with great fear. So He got into the boat and returned. He has the power to free. He's shown He has the power to free. He has the power to, to, to bring deliverance. To go back to trusting in something other than Him or to not trust in Him is irrational given who He's claimed to be. It's unreasonable. The reasonable thing to do based upon what Jesus can do and does, is to bow the knee and acknowledge Him for who He claims to be. Instead, they say, we like demons. If you read the other gospel accounts, it was such a problem that people, you know, your travel plans would have to be dictated by the de demonic guy. You lived with the reality of what goes on out of the graveyard. And yet, they say, we, we like that better. Let's put it in contemporary kind of verbiage, the, people, the way people talk today. Not, none of you I know, praise the Lord. Um, they're saying, in other words, having seen the facts, seen who Jesus is, they're saying, don't confuse me with the facts, I know what I believe. That's what's going on here. Or to pick up another phrase, if, if we were to get in their face and say, well, what, are you, what are you thinking? Why would you draw these, these wrong conclusions? You would prefer to have demons than, 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 than Jesus? Well, yes. I'll just, I just, I live by faith. I'll take it on faith. The demons are better than Jesus. <laughs> That's irrational. That's an irrational faith. 
Because the object of faith is self, convenience, more bacon. I mean, I, it's just, it just doesn't even make sense. It's just irrational. Now, let's maybe even think about, and this is guesswork. We, we wouldn't want to be drawing hard and fast conclusions. But l- let's think about why this might have been. Let's say you live in that region. And uh, got the demons harassing this guy and others. How are you going to explain that to your kids if you have kids? What's going to happen is there's going to be all kinds of explanations. And who knows how long this has been going on. And what your grandpa told you when you sat on his knee. And what kind of stories your grandma told you about why to stay away from there. and Why that happens to those kinds of people. Why that doesn't happen to us. Who knows? But there would have been a, a, a theology, if you will, of the demons in the graveyard. An explanation. Maybe many explanations. There were belief systems. And here Jesus gives this guy total deliverance. Which in one way or another is probably going to mess with your theology and your philosophy of demons in the graveyard. He's the one. He has the power. So whatever you have been believing now needs to be cashed in and traded in and exposed for irrationality, superstition, fantasy, and has to be traded in for Jesus is the deliverer. So ultimately it doesn't matter the explanation because he's the one who can be trusted because he's the one who has power. Maybe this means which doctors are, are out of business or other kinds of seances or superstitions or different kinds of things that they might have done, different kinds of worship that they would have had in the community and putting up altars and taking care of demon kinds of issues. And you got to cash it in and say, you know what, it's all a bunch of baloney. Let's just stop taking irrationality on faith, which is irrational, or fantasy on faith, uh, for, by faith. The answer is Jesus. Um, Jesus, would you leave, please? We kind of like things the way they are. Well, sadly, nonsense is winning these people's hearts over. Just like you know people who, in essence, say, don't confuse me with the facts. I know what I believe. And nonsense wins over. Maybe another way to look at it is, please don't conclude, if you're a Christian, don't conclude that if you get all of the facts presented factually to people that they're going to draw the right conclusions. You can conclude that it's irrational not to believe in Jesus. It's unreasonable not to believe in Jesus based upon the historic realities of what he did and what he claimed. That doesn't mean people are going to believe. These people didn't. Sadly, 38 says, the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus 
had done for him. Ah, isn't that, did, did you catch that? Go tell about how much God had done for you. And so he did. He went and told about how much Jesus had done for him. He knew who Jesus was. He knew full well who Jesus was. And then once again, what I need to do is remind you that it doesn't end here. This was never meant to be an end in and of itself. And as you're reading through the gospel accounts, you know and I know that it's going somewhere. Supernatural power. Supernatural power. Claims to be supernatural. Claims to be supernatural. Backed up by supernatural demonstrations of supernatural power again and again and again and again. And it's ultimately all building toward the supernatural work of redemption and atonement and resurrection. Bodily, physical resurrection, just like bodily, physical deliverance. And so it doesn't surprise us. It doesn't catch us off guard and and we don't say, well, do I have to take faith on faith? And it's confusing and irrational and I'm just going to believe things that can't possibly happen and there's no way they actually did happen and that would be irrational to draw that conclusion. If you're reading the gospel accounts, real time, real actions, really truly witnessed, verified, and really and truly trusted in, and really and truly rejected? You tell me. Which one is unreasonable? To trust in Jesus? Or to not trust in Him? The answer is pretty obvious. I'm encouraging you the best way I can is to be liberated by the facts. To trust in Jesus if you haven't and aren't and to realize there's a great, great, great opportunity for you to love somebody and help them to understand these things knowing that you cannot change their heart, you can't change their minds ultimately, but you can do a much better job than than we're currently doing so many times, at least getting the message right and getting the, the Savior presented clearly to them. And you pray that the Spirit of God will work, that they would believe the facts and be freed from bondage to sin, to experience the great love of God. And hopefully we're going to be all the more equipped to do that. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you so much for Jesus, who's a great Savior. Thank you for his uh, loving kindness. Thank you for the way he cares for us. Thank you that he really did come here and he really did these extraordinary actions, not just so we can be amused and not just so we can um, see that maybe he's a little bit more powerful than the next prophet, but to see that he really is the one who could provide atonement, who really could bring salvation. And may we cause, uh, may this cause us to worship Him and to trust Him and to communicate to others the trustworthiness of Jesus. 
and his name we pray.